several years ago I, I saw this little video clip and I, I thought it was really funny and it, it, it hit home pretty closely for me. It went through this thing, it was talking about how that there's one day of the week where in a certain country people everywhere go to their temples and they paint their faces and they sing the same songs and they chant their chants. And it went on and on. I couldn't find the video again this week, so I don't remember exactly everything it said. But then it turns out they weren't talking about a cult or a false religion. It was talking about college football here in America. And that when you look at the two side by side, you know, this occultic idol worship and the way many people treat their sports teams, I mean, the similarities were eerie. But I think it's, it's interesting because I believe that within each one of us is this need to worship. And it gets, gets expressed in different ways. And I don't, there's nothing wrong with enjoying a sporting event. But do you make that team your highest priority? Do you make that, and for many people, that, that's all they've got. That's all there is out there, is finding these things to fill the void that they have in their life, this need they have to worship. And we often think of worship as the time when we come together where we sing and we pray and we learn from God's word. But our lives should be a constant state of worship. We should be worshiping God with our entire lives. That when we choose to do his will and put his goals above our goals and to love him, then we are worshiping him with who we are. I it was interesting. I, I really do enjoy that last song we sang. But at the end of it there, it said something about how, um, but why should I benefit from Christ's reward? And it is. It's one of those things that you think of, you know, why God would you do this? When we were going through Galatians, I brought this out, that it talks about that in Ephesians 1, to the glory of God the Father. It says it three times in the work of God. God the Father's work is to his glory. Jesus' work on the cross is to God the Father's glory. And the Spirit's work is to the glory of God the Father. It's a, a running theme throughout the scripture of who we are is to bring glory to God the Father. Our salvation itself brings glory to God the Father. I told you last week one of the main, well, you can look at the book of Judges being written for many different reasons. It fulfills different purposes. I specifically like the one that says that about how God's grace prevails in spite of Israel being Israel. We can see that in our own lives. And that brings glory to God with who he is through his grace. So we come to Judges 2. Today we'll be looking at verses 6 through 3-6. And as I told you last week, there are two introductions to the book. This is the second introduction. And as we look at this second introduction, we get a clear picture of Israel's apostasy. Apostasy is the abandonment or the renunciation of your religion. Because you see, it isn't a question of if Israel will worship, we were created to worship. It is what will they worship? 
for our scripture reading today, we looked at Joshua 24. Like I said, that was the very end of his life. That's right before this happens. And that's his, what he's saying. You have to choose to serve the Lord, to worship the Lord. And in the first chapter, we saw Israel start to go on this downhill slide. And now we'll take up that story again here in Judges 2, beginning in verse 6. When Joshua had dismissed the people, the sons of Israel went each to his inheritance to possess the land. The people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who survived Joshua, who had seen all the great work of the Lord, which he had done for Israel. Then Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. And they buried him in the territory of his inheritance in Tinmath Harris, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gaash. All that generation also were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord, nor yet the work which he had done for Israel. So as we look at Israel's apostasy in here, we see here that the, the writer is giving the cause of why they left their faith in these verses. Now if you remember in chapter 1, chapter 1 also began by talking about Joshua's death. This here is almost an exact retelling of Joshua's death from the book of Joshua. But as I said, we've got two introductions here, and there's several theories as to what people are, what this is talking about here. The first would be that that opening statement of, and then Joshua died in chapter one, is sort of just a broad introduction to the book. But that everything that happens in that first chapter, in the first few verses of chapter two, all actually happened before Joshua died. There is um, the other, I think, most plausible theory is that that is a broad introduction and then some of those things happened before Joshua died, but then many of them happened after Joshua died. We know that some of them happened before Joshua died. We read the story of Othniel and who he conquered. He was given Caleb's daughter as a his wife, that happens in the book of Joshua. So we know some of that happens before. But I think that as you get to the end of Joshua 1 and you see the people falling away, well, it tells us here in Joshua 2 that the generation that knew Joshua, that knew God's work, that they remained faithful. And so there at the end of chapter 2, when you have the, the people in the hill country with iron chariots, and so the Israelites could not drive them out is what it says and they could not do this and they were oppressed by these people I think the most likely explanation is that the first introduction that we get is Israel's perspective it's all looking at the military wins and losses and now as we get to the second introduction we're getting God's perspective not military not where they're at with their military but where they are spiritually And here again, spiritually, they've left God. They've become apostates. 
They've abandoned their faith. And we see this cause, and for them the cause is the previous generation has gone away. They're surrounded by these other people. They begin to fail at driving them out, and so they abandon their God. But it's interesting, I think, what causes you to fall away? Whether it be momentary or a period of time, there are things in our life that can cause us to abandon what works, to abandon our faith, to turn inwardly to look at ourselves instead of to look at God. I think it's interesting, I mean, in my own life there could have been times where there was, I look back, there was maybe one distinct sin that led to a chain reaction or a hardship where I began focusing on myself. I think oftentimes, when you look at the children of Israel, it's sort of a complacency they have towards God and his commands. And as this generation is growing and the one is dying out and the other is maturing, it's this sort of gradual slide into complacency. When I was thinking about that, it made me think of something I'd read a while ago. I want to read this to you. Many of you here would probably know this much more than I would, but it's talking about cows. It says, a slaughterhouse, in order to keep the cattle relaxed, should remove anything from sight of the animals that isn't completely familiar. The real problem is novelty. Workers shouldn't yell at the cows. They should never use cattle prods. Because all those things are counterproductive and unneeded. If you just keep the cows content and comfortable, they'll go wherever they led, wherever they're led. This is now with the things they've developed, that the cows aren't prodded off the truck but are led in silence onto a ramp. They go through a squeeze chute, a gentle pressure device that mimics a mother's nuzzling touch. The cattle continue down the ramp onto a smoothly curving path. There are no sudden turns. The cows experience the sensation of going home, the same kind of way they've traveled so many times before as they mosey along the path. They don't even notice when their hooves are no longer touching the ground. The conveyor belt slowly lifts them gently upward, and then, in the twinkling of an eye, a blunt instrument levels a surgical strike right between their eyes, and they're transitioned from livestock to meat. And they've never aware enough to be alarmed by any of it. I, I just I read that a while ago, and I just thought it was interesting because I can see that in our spiritual lives. That if you're growing complacent, if you're not warring against the flesh, as Paul talked about in Galatians, if you're not making that daily choice to put God first, it is so easy to become complacent and to be led down that path. Just like we see the children of Israel here, and we will see it over and over again in the book of Judges. They are led down this path of destruction. And so we need to be aware of those causes. The, the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 13 asks his readers to pray for him that he has a clear conscience. Pray that for yourself, for others. Ask God to illuminate the things in your life that are, are leading you down that path, things that you're putting ahead of him. Don't let that cause become that downward path that, leads to destruction. 
Our second point here, we see the cycle. There's a cycle that is repeated throughout the book of Judges. And the writer brings it out here. He showed us the cause of the apostasy, sort of its roots, and now he's going to show us what that led to. Beginning in verse 11. Then the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. That statement, over and over in this book, the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. And they forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt and followed other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed themselves down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. So they forsook the Lord and served Baal and the Ashtaroth. I think it's interesting here when you think about this, you, you see that they've forsaken God, is what the writer tells us. That doesn't mean they didn't worship Yahweh anymore. I mean, they had their own traditions, everything they knew, and so they probably kept on doing that, but they incorporated everything else around them into what they were doing. But God has demanded an exclusive relationship. It's the first commandment. I should have no other gods before me. And so when that goes downhill, in God's eyes, they have completely forsaken him. The word they use for this is syncretism. That it's like those bumper stickers you see that say coexist with all the different symbols from the different religions. That's what they'd become, and it's, it's interesting because that's it's very much what the religion of the Canaanites was. It was, well, Baal was the, the sun god. The Canaanites believed he was the source of physical life. Uh, they credited him with having children, with their crops growing, with their animals having offspring. The other God that's mentioned here, Ashtara, she was the, the leading female deity. She was a moon goddess whose original symbol is an evergreen tree or a grove. But really, when it comes down to it, they were a people that looked at everything physical around them, and they would pick a God for these different things. And so... To survive in that land, they felt like you had to, to know each of these gods and to be able to worship them and so the different areas of your life would be fulfilled. This is nothing new here and it, it's, it's very similar to how people groups all over the world have worshipped the creation around them instead of the creator. They take the physical things they can see and the, the power that they see in nature, and instead of worshiping the one who controls that power, they worship nature itself. But they've created all these gods, and so in their own religion, they're very syncretistic, syncretistic, that they have all these different gods that they worship. And so the Israelites being surrounded by that fall into this same pattern, and they begin to worship their gods. 
thought this was an interesting quote. It says that the greatest sin a human being can commit is not murder or other despicable acts of atrocity. It is to turn his back on the living God to serve man-made gods. To break that first commandment. And I know I've talked about this before, but I think it's an interesting perspective to think that when Satan fell, it created two questions. One is who was worthy to rule and who was worthy to be loved. And so to answer those questions, God created us. And when we choose to serve ourselves, we're choosing ourselves over God. In the end, he will prove that he is the one who is worthy. But as we go through our lives, if we are choosing ourselves or something else, then we're answering that question the wrong way. Because God is the only one who is worthy to rule, to rule our lives, and to be loved. If we are created to worship God, to bring glory to him, and then we fail in our, our very purpose when we put any other God before him, and we see here that Israel has failed. As we look at this cycle that will be repeated, this is the first step, apostasy. Leaving God. Continue again in verse 14. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he gave them into the hands of plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hands of their enemies around them so that they could no longer stand before their enemies. Wherever they went, the hand of the Lord was against them for evil, as the Lord had spoken and as that the Lord had sworn to them so that they were severely distressed. So the next step in this cycle is God's wrath. Israel forsakes God and then he pours out his wrath on them using the nations around them. That as he promised he would, he punishes them for what they have done. Turn with me to Hebrews 12, beginning in verse 7. It says there, It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, so that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems to not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. God punishes to bring people back to him. And as we look at this cycle throughout Judges, we will see that. The people become distressed. 
We'll see again and again how they cry out to God for help. Once they have seen their need for God, once they've seen the consequences of what forsaking him has brought, In verse 16, then the Lord raised up judges who delivered them from the hands of those who plundered them. And so that's the last step in this cycle, God's grace. The people forsake God, God pours out his wrath, God's grace. Read 17 through 19 as we see this expanded upon further. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they played the harlot after other gods and bowed themselves down to them. They turned aside quickly from the way in which their fathers had walked in obeying the commandments of the Lord. And they did not do as their fathers. When the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and delivered them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who oppressed and afflicted them. But it came about when the judge died that they would turn back and act more corruptly than their fathers and following other gods to serve them and bow down in them. They did not abandon their practices or their stubborn ways. And so that's the cycle. It's They forsake God. God judges them. Then God, through his grace, sends someone to rescue them. And we'll see that while that person is alive, they do pretty good. And then once that person dies, it's going to start all over again. I mentioned this a little bit last week, but I think the book of Judges is so interesting as a foreboding tale because, I mean, you can see this in your own life. If you slip up and you, and you go this far and then you come back, well, the next time it makes it a little easier to get over here. And as the book of Judges goes on and on, the people become worse and worse. They take the mistakes of their parents and they double them. Our third point here is we get to verses 20 through the next part of the first part of chapter 3. And I think this is very interesting because we see God's will revealed. And you read the book of Judges and it's easy to think, well, it, God, if you just added a few chapters to the book of Joshua... <laughs> and let them take out all the people there, well, then we wouldn't have this whole mess. Because this book is a mess. I read one place that there's, there's no more clear picture of the depravity of humanity than the book of Judges. Well, why couldn't we just avoid all that? Read verse 20 through 23. So the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he said, Because this nation has transgressed my covenant, which I commanded their fathers, and has not listened to my voice, I also will no longer drive out before them any of the nations which Joshua left when he died. 
in order to test Israel by them, whether they will keep the way of the Lord to walk in it as their fathers did or not. So going again back to the book of Joshua, Joshua had amazing victories. Well, God had amazing victories through Joshua. The list of kings that he conquered is long. And once they took out some of those major cities and kings, and they had possession of a good portion of the land, Joshua divided the promised land up among the tribes. And it was then each tribe's job to go out and rid their portion of the inheritance of the foreigners, of the Canaanites. We looked at that last week as the book began with them going and driving people out. But did you notice what it, God said there in verse 22? Why did he leave those people for each of the tribes to take care of? Why didn't Joshua just drive them all out? In order to test Israel by them, whether they will keep the way of the Lord, to walk in it as their fathers did or not. That's why. God tells them why. At the moment in their failings, they have no idea why. At our moments of trial, we have no idea why. But God has a plan to bring glory to himself. Read verses 1 and 2 of chapter 3. Now these are the nations which the Lord left to test Israel by them. That is all who would not experience any of the wars of Canaan. Only in order that the generations of the sons of Israel might be taught war, those who had not experienced it formerly. And so we see this a second aspect of what God has done by leaving these people there is that you think the, was the faith of the, the children of Israel that came up to Jericho and walked around it day after day and then heard the trumpets blow and saw the walls fall down. Do you think their faith was greater before or after the walls fell down? It was after. And so God left these people there so that they too could experience his work. The way that he was wanting to work through them to, it says to teach them more, but it's really teaching them dependence upon him. Because there was no other way for them to win. They were not the biggest people or the most numerous people or the strongest or the best warriors. They were none of that. There's no way they should have taken anything that they did. But they had the almighty God of the universe on their side. And so this next generation needed to learn that lesson. Read verses 3 and 4. These nations are the five lords of the Philistines and all the Canaanites and the Sidonians and the Hivites who lived in Mount Lebanon from Mount Baal Hermon to as far as, far as Lebo Hamath. They were for the testing of Israel to find out if they would obey the commandments of the Lord which he had commanded their fathers through Moses. So again, it comes back again to the idea of they were left there as a test. A test that we 
right here from the beginning of the book, we see Israel failing. They fail in warfare. They don't trust God. Most importantly, they fail in their keeping his covenant. That he commanded them that they would have no other God before him, and they did. But it's interesting, we see this, and it makes me think, I mean, how often do I react poorly to being tested? It's like in school, I mean, you can, there were times where, you, for me, some subjects came easy, some were harder. Like I've told you before, math, well, I was great at regular math, but once you start adding letters and stuff in there, I had a hard time with algebra. And I remember I would study and study and study, and then I would sit down at this algebra test, and it just all looked like gobbledygook. In the midst of that test, I fell apart. The things that I should have known and easily been able to do, I was just overwhelmed. It took so much work to be able to get through that class, to prepare for those tests. How do we respond to the testing of our faith? Turn with me to James 1, a verse I'm sure many of us know. James 1, verses 2 and 2 to 4. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. As we look at this trial, if the children of Israel had passed it, if they had remained faithful, if they had let God militarily work through them and they conquered the whole land, they would have been yet another generation that had seen God work. And they could have had faith like their parents who had been with Joshua and seen God work through him. But they failed. In our lives, God brings tests along so that we can grow, so that we can see him work in our own lives. And instead of grumbling and falling apart, we need to take joy in that. That God wants to use me. And because of that, he's making me stronger, making me complete. It's interesting, though, when we, we see them fail, we repeatedly see this pattern. And this isn't something new for the children of Israel. And you go back to Exodus, God sends the plagues and all these things and the children of Israel finally get to leave. What's the first thing they do? They don't trust God when Pharaoh is on his way with his army. Oh, it would have been better to stay in Egypt than die in the desert. Then God parts the Red Sea. A few weeks later, Moses goes away. Oh, woe is us. Moses is gone. Let's make a golden calf. They get to the promised land. There's grapes the size of baseballs. They come back and go, oh, it's 
It looks perfect, but the people are too big. So God sends them into the desert for 40 years, and they, they complain about the food and the water. and it, It's over and over and over, and each time God provides a way, but yet they just keep going in this cycle. And the interesting thing with, with Judges is, because when you read the book of Joshua, you think they've finally got it. I mean, it's not that they were perfect. They made the mistakes. There were consequences for those, like the battle of Ai, but you'd think they've got it. And right here at the beginning of Judges, they just fall off a cliff. Read verses 5 and 6 here as we conclude. The sons of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And they took their daughters for themselves as wives and gave their own daughters to their sons, and they served their gods. I read a couple of them last week, but I mean from Exodus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, God warns them over and over and over again, do not intermarry with these people. When you get in there, don't make any covenants with them. Drive them out. And yet we see here that's exactly what they're doing. It's interesting, you go back to chapter 2, verse 7, where we began. Said so the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua. The word serve there is the Hebrew word avad. It has this connotation of worship. They were serving God. And then you come to the end of this second introduction. They were serving the gods of the people. How far they had fallen. We need to be acutely aware of our need to worship because it's a need that we're going to feel consciously or unconsciously if you are not purposefully putting God in that place then something else is going to take his spot whether you mean to put him there or not it's like Jesus said in Matthew 6 24 that no one can serve two masters you're either going to love the one and hate the other or you will cling to one and despise the other you can't serve God and wealth. That's true of anything. And God is the one who created us. And so if he's telling you it's impossible, it's impossible. You cannot do it. Just like the Israelites, it's not a if you will worship, it is who you will worship. And if we fail on that first commandment of putting no other God before God, we see what the outcome is. It's spiritual failure. We don't have enemy nations around us that turn us into slaves like the Israelites did. But how often does Paul in his letters describe bondage to sin? We make ourselves our God, our wealth our God, or anything else, when we worship anything but God alone, we become a slave to that in this never-ending cycle. We need to be grateful for a God who is full of grace, who has saved us by grace, whose grace abounds in our life, that when we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive them. But we need to be putting him first.
if we want the other things to follow, if we want to pass those tests. Would you pray with me?